guys, welcome to Kraken Cove, the podcast that shines a beacon onto the bazaar. I'm Matt, uh, and I'm usually joined by Benny, but I'm sad to report that Benny's gone missing. He's out there somewhere in the storm, in Kraken Cove. But the thing is, I can't go looking for him. It's the golden rule of the lighthouse, right, is that the light comes before all else. Someone has to stay behind to tend the light. If something happened to me and the lighthouse light went out, well, imagine the danger to all those ships out there. It's happened before, though. Now, this reminds me of a story. The mysterious vanishing lighthouse men of Eileen Moore. So I'm going to cast my light out and maybe I'll shine a light on Benny. Wherever he is. Though three men dwell on Flannan Isle to keep the lamp alight, as we stayed under the lee, we caught no glimmer through the night. A passing ship at dawn had brought the news, and quickly we set sail to find out what strange things might ail the keepers of the deep sea light.
These are the first few lines of the 1912 poem, Flannan Isle, by Wilfred Wilson Gibson, and they set the scene for one of the most enduring mysteries of the 20th century. Granted, it may not be a mystery as famous as the Marie Celeste, or the disappearance of Bomber Flight 19 over the Bermuda Triangle, but the mystery of the Flannan Isle Lighthouse is still a riddle that defies explanation to this day. But before we tackle the mystery, let's take a look at the Flannan Islands themselves. The Flannan Islands, or alternatively, the Seven Hunters, are a small group in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. Approximately 32 kilometres or 20 miles west of the Isle of Lewis. They take their name from St. Flannan, the 7th century Irish missionary preacher and abbot, who is believed to have made his home there. Giving you a better idea of where the Flannan Islands are, if you look at a map of Great Britain, follow the west coast upwards on the left hand side, all the way up to the tip of Scotland until we get to a group of islands. These are the Outer Hebrides, some of the most remote islands in the whole of Europe, rendered even more so by stormy seas and unpredictable weather. People think the British Isles are pretty much the same from one end to the other, but to put it in context, a trip from London to the Outer Hebrides would take you by road and sea almost 16 hours to cover the 750 miles distance, and that's only if the weather allows it. You see, when it's sunny in the south of England, in the north of Scotland, it can be blizzard conditions. These islands can be isolated for days, weeks, or even months by treacherous weather. But once you finally got to the Outer Hebrides, you still have a further perilous sea trip to reach the Flannan Isles, even further to the north. The next land you'll hit after that is Iceland. The islands are split into three groups. The main cluster of rocks that lie to the northeast include the two principal islands, Island Moor, the Big Isle, which is approximately 17.5 hectares or 43 acres in extent, and Island Teig, House Isle, to the south. To the south lie Sore, known as Eastwood Isle, and Skir Tomain. While the main western outcrop of Aileen Agurba, Isle of the Blacksmith, Roarame, which has a natural rock arch, and the last island, Bronaklate, which means sad sunk rock. These are the Seven Hunters. The total land area amounts to approximately 50 hectares, or 120 acres, and the highest point is 88 metres, or 289 feet, above sea level on Eileen Moor. Eileen Taig, or House Isle, hosts a ruined stone shelter. Eileen Moor is home to the lighthouse, and a ruined chapel dedicated to St. Flannan, a chapel believed to be where he also lived, but which the lighthouse keepers refer to as the Dog Kennel, 
because of its small size. These ruined Bothies were described collectively by the Ancient Monuments Commission as the Bothies of Clan Macphail. The habitation of the islands has long been a contentious issue. While St. Flannan may have been brave enough to live there for a while, before being driven away, it is said, by what is referred to as magical beings. For many centuries after, the very thought of spending a night on one of the Flannan Islands would have been enough to strike dread into the heart of the hardy locals who inhabited the slightly less foreboding islands off that stretch of the stormy Scottish coast. Myth and mystery shrouds these grim peaks, much like the fogs and frets that plague those freezing seas. Shepherds would bring their flocks ashore by boat and leave them there to graze, but the shepherds themselves would hurry back to the boat well before nightfall, having performed strange rituals to ward off any malignant spirits that might be watching them. The only other visitors to the islands were the inhabitants of the Isle of Lewis, who would visit to harvest the seabirds, their down, their feathers and their eggs. A profitable pursuit, but one that is also highly perilous. They too would perform rituals to protect themselves from the less physical terrors of the islands. As an account by Martin Martin, a 17th century chronicler of the Scottish Islands puts it, when they come within about twenty paces of the chapel, they all strip themselves of their upper garments at once, and their upper clothes being laid upon a stone which stands there on purpose for that use. All the crew pray three times before they begin fouling. The first day they say the first prayer, advancing towards the chapel upon their knees. The second prayer is said as they go round the chapel. The third is said hard by or at the chapel, and this is their morning service. Their vespers are performed with the like number of prayers. Another rule is that it is absolutely unlawful to kill a fowl or bird with a stone, for that they reckon a great barbarity, and directly contrary to ancient custom. It is also unlawful to kill a fowl before they ascend by the ladder. It is absolutely unlawful to call the island of St Kilda, which lies thirty leagues southwards, by its proper Irish name, Hirt, but you must only call it High Country. They must not so much as once name the islands in which they are following by the ordinary name Flannan, but only the country. There are several other things that must not be called by their common names, for example, Visk, which in the language of the natives signifies water, they call Bern. A rock, which in their language is Craig, must be called Crui, or hard. Shaw, in their language expressed as Kladach, must be called Va. Or cave. Sour in their language is expressed as gort, but must here be called ger, meaning sharp. Slippery, which is expressed 
bug must be called soft and several other things to this purpose. They account it also unlawful to kill a fowl after evening prayers. There is an ancient custom by which the crew is obliged not to carry home any sheep fat. Let them kill ever so many sheep on these islands. One of the principal customs is not to steal or eat anything unknown to their partner, else the transgressor will certainly vomit it up, which they reckon as a just judgment. And these were the words of Martin Martin, the chronicler of the Scottish Isles. The islands were said to be the home of magical little people, known as a Lusberdan, and locals feared them. Also there were stories of huge birds who dwelt there, big enough to carry a man away, it was said. Not to mention the legend of the Phantom of the Seven Hunters. A boat full of ghosts, unhappy at the intrusion of mortal man into their domain. Now, these can all be construed as legends and superstitions. The fantastical tales of simple seafaring folk. But more often than not, such tales serve a purpose. Perhaps to dissuade the unwary of visiting places of high peril. Areas on maps of antiquity that once bore the legend, Here there be dragons. For centuries, the waters around the northwestern coast of Scotland were feared by fishermen and sailors due to their treacherous weather combined with the perilous, jagged cliffs of the countless islands scattered throughout the freezing Atlantic seas. Ship after ship was shattered on the rocks after losing their bearings in the long cold nights on the northern seas. But in 1782, a series of ferocious storms lashed the Hebridean coast, ending with the deaths of many seamen, including the destruction of at least two herring boats that were dashed to pieces on the rocks of the Kintyre Peninsula. And so the Northern Lighthouse Board came into being, set with the task of constructing a string of lighthouses along the most treacherous stretches of the Scottish coastline. But it would be over a hundred years before it was deemed possible for a lighthouse to be constructed upon the formidable Flannan Islands. And it would take every ounce of the famed skill of the late Victorian Scottish engineers to accomplish this Herculean task. The 23 meter or 75 foot high Flannan Isles Lighthouse was designed by David Allen Stevenson, cousin of the famous author Robert Louis Stevenson who wrote Treasure Island. And between David and his immediate family, they designed and built well over 100 lighthouses, no doubt saving the lives of countless thousands of seafarers over the following years. Construction on the lighthouse began in 1895 and ended in 1899, taking twice as long to complete as was previously estimated due to the brutal conditions of the island. Once complete, the island boasted not only a new lighthouse, but 
two landing places, one on the east, one on the west. So, if conditions were too treacherous to land on one side, they might be able to do so on the opposite side of the island. Each landing place had stairs, a railway track, and a crane mounted roughly 70 feet up each cliff over the landings to winch supplies ashore. All of the materials used to build the lighthouse, every single piece of rock, steel and timber, had to be hauled up the 45 meter or 148 foot cliffs directly from supply boats. No trivial task in the ever-churning Atlantic. The purpose of the railway tracks was to facilitate the transport of provisions for the keepers and to haul the 20 barrels of paraffin needed per year for the light. These were hauled up the steep gradients from the landing places by means of a cable-hauled railway. This was powered by a small steam engine in a shed adjoining the lighthouse. A track descended from the lighthouse in a westerly direction and then curved around to the south. In the approximate centre of the island it forked by means of a set of hand-operated points, humorously dubbed Clapham Junction. One branch continued its curvature to head eastwards to the east landing place on the southeast corner of the island, thus forming a half circle, while the other slightly shorter branch curved back to the west to serve the west landing, situated in a small inlet. The final approaches to the landing stages were extremely steep. The cable was guided round curves by pulleys set between the rails and a line of posts set outside the inner rail to prevent it from going too far astray should it jump off the pulleys. The cargo was carried in a small four-wheeled bogey. And so it was that on the evening of the 7th of December 1899, the light of Flannan Isles lighthouse was lit, shining out into the winter darkness of the cruel Atlantic and making those seas so much safer for mariners but perhaps also marking the arrival of the first permanent residents of the island of Eileen Moor since St. Flannan fled the island some 1300 years earlier. And these new arrivals will no doubt have overlooked the customs and rituals of the local islanders, used for centuries to keep themselves safe from whatever supernatural entities might, perhaps, inhabit the islands of the Seven Hunters. Almost exactly one year later, on the 26th of December 1900, Joseph Moore stood on the bows of a longboat as it fought through freezing seas, headed for the east landing of the largest of the Flannan Islands, Eileen Moore. The silhouette of the dark lighthouse just visible high above, its lamp unlit. The lighthouse tender ship Hesperus was already a day late having been delayed by violent storms that made it impossible for them to put to sea. But even so, all who set sail that day in the vessel, carrying fresh supplies and Joseph Moore, the relief lighthouse keeper, 
did so with a grim sense of trepidation, for it was already becoming clear that all was not well at the Flannan Niles Lighthouse. Word had reached the Northern Lighthouse Board that on the 15th of December, the cargo ship SS Archtor, captained by Thomas John Holman, had passed by the Flannan Isles on his way from Philadelphia to Edinburgh with four and a half thousand tons of cargo on board. He estimated that he had passed the lighthouse during the night, passing less than five miles from its estimated position. But the light was not visible, even though the conditions that night, while stormy, were clear and should have allowed the light to be seen up to 20 miles away. And so now, as the Hesperus came within sight of the lighthouse, Captain James Harvey blew on the steam whistle as was customary to alert the lighthouse keepers to the ship's presence. They noted that the flag the keepers were supposed to raise in preparation for the shift rotation was not visible and no one appeared at the sound of the steam whistle. The captain then sounded the siren. But when this also had no effect, the ship's crew took the unusual step of firing a distress rocket in a final attempt to attract the attention of the lighthouse crew. But to no avail. There was no sign of the three men who made up the lighthouse crew. Principal keeper James Duckett, 43. Second assistant keeper Thomas Marshall, 28 and Donald MacArthur, aged 40, an old soldier hired as a stand-in for the first assistant keeper, William Ross, who was on an extended sick leave. It was customary for two of the keepers to be in attendance on the landing, in readiness to help the longboat to dock in the choppy swell, and to assist in the unloading of the supplies, but no man was present on the east landing that day. Moore was forced to leap ashore unaided, a risky manoeuvre in itself, and as the crew of the longboat waited, he climbed the steep stone stair alone, towards the dark lighthouse, situated some 200 feet above him. Walking past the ruined chapel, he could see no light in the living quarters of the lighthouse. No call of greeting from his colleagues, no sign of life whatsoever. Moore found the gate of the compound safely closed. As was the door into the lighthouse. But what he found inside remained a mystery for well over a century and remains so today. The main door led first into the kitchen which was immaculately clean but freezing cold the fire in the grate having burned out long ago. The only thing slightly amiss was one chair pushed out from the table as if someone had just risen and left the room. Investigating the bedrooms, Moore found everything in perfect order, with beds made and curtains drawn. In the lamp room, he found the lamp polished, the paraffin tanks full, the shutters in the correct position. As Moore made his way through the deserted lighthouse, an unsettling silence nagged at him, and he realised that every single clock in the building had stopped 
having wound down some time ago. Now severely rattled, Moore fled to the east landing and called on two of the crew in the waiting longboat for assistance. Together, the three men searched once more for signs of the missing men, but their search was fruitless, and together they boarded the longboat and returned to the tender ship Hesperus. After Captain Harvey listened to Joseph Moore's account of the situation on the island, he quickly made the decision that the priority must be to keep the lighthouse running, and so he ordered the understandably nervous Moore to return once again to the lighthouse, accompanied by three volunteers, one being the boy master, Alan MacDonald, and the others two regular crew, Campbell and Lamont. Once the men had safely landed upon Eileen Moore, Captain Harvey returned to the island of Lewis with all speed, and there sent the now legendary telegram to the Northern Lighthouse Board in Edinburgh that begins, A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. We can only imagine what went through the minds of Moore, MacDonald, Campbell and Lamont during that first night alone in the lighthouse, not knowing the fate of the previous crew, jumping at every creaking floorboard, each rattle of the window. They must have immersed themselves in work, in tending the lamp and lighting the fire, cooking a hot meal, something anything to take their minds off what terrible end might have come to their colleagues, and no doubt casting their minds back to older times, perhaps recalling the rumours and superstitions that clung to the fog-shrouded cliffs of the Seven Hunters, and maybe wondering if there might be some truth in them after all. I do not imagine any of them slept particularly well that night. As a cold late December dawn struggled to illuminate the isles, Moore and his crew began once again to search the island, taking careful note of their findings. Having themselves landed on the eastern side of the island the day before, they already knew it to be in good order, but the west landing told a very different story. The iron railings on the side of the tramway some 40 or 50 feet above the sea level, had been torn from their concrete foundations and twisted completely out of shape. A heavy box used for storing ropes that was kept 70 feet above sea level and wedged into a crevice and soundly anchored was gone. Below on the path, just above the landing, a one-ton rock rested, dislodged from the cliffs above but on later inspection of the logbooks was found to have fallen days before the keeper's disappearance or was not responsible for the wrecking of the railings. A life buoy some 110 feet above the landing was missing and the men at first thought it had been used in some form of rescue but closer inspection showed that it had been wrenched from its mountings leaving torn strips of canvas behind. Back at the lighthouse, another sinister anomaly presented itself. Each of the men stationed on the island had a set of wet weather gear for use in poor conditions. Ducat, the principal keeper, 
had sea boots and a waterproof. Marshall had sea boots and oilskins. MacArthur, the stand-in for the sick William Ross, did not have waterproofs, but instead used a heavy old coat, oddly named his wearing coat. Joseph Moore found all the waterproof clothing missing, presumably being worn by Ducat and Marshall when they disappeared. But MacArthur's coat, his wearing coat, remained on its hook. The golden rule of the lighthouse is to keep the lamp lit at all costs. Therefore, all three men were forbidden to leave the lighthouse at any one time. One man must always remain to keep the lamp lit. But what could have happened to make these seasoned lighthouse men abandon their posts? And why had MacArthur done so without first putting on his coat in December, in the teeth of a brutal winter, on a remote, storm-lashed Scottish island? It must have been a huge relief for Joseph Moore when the tender ship Hesperus returned and a fresh crew of lighthouse keepers took over the running of the Flannan Isles Lighthouse. Those keepers must have been brave men. Braver than me, that's for sure. Any fears they might have had were unfounded, however, for there was never another incident like this on the islands. Right up until 1971, when the light was finally automated and a crew of keepers were no longer required. But in the following weeks and months following the tragedy, a full investigation was made by the Northern Lighthouse Board, but no trace of James Ducat, Thomas Marshall and Donald MacArthur was ever seen again, and their fate remained unexplained. The conclusion of the following official Northern Lighthouse Board inquiry was that the men had been swept out to sea by a freak wave. But for this to be true, the wave would have to be truly colossal, perhaps 150 feet in height or more. It was even speculated that one of the men went mad and killed the other two, threw their bodies from the cliff then hurled himself into the storm-lashed seas. But the truth is, the Northern Lighthouse Board had no more idea as to what had happened than you or I. The theories as to what happened between the days of the 15th of December and the 26th of December that year fluctuate wildly between the practical and the fantastical, from the physical to the magical. But no matter what the theory, it will remain nothing more than speculation. Was it the famed little people of the islands? The pygmies? Was it the phantom of the seven hunters? Were the three men taken by giant birds, as has been speculated? Or perhaps by pirates? It has been suggested they were abducted by the folk of other islands and sacrificed to ancient pagan gods. Outlandish suggestions, yes. But are the practical possibilities any less fantastical? The biggest ever recorded wave was measured at 91 feet in height. A huge freak wave by anyone's standards. 
but the wreckage on the western landing of Eileen Moore suggests a wave huge enough to twist iron, dislodge rock, and rip apart strong canvas from the height of 110 feet as if it was tissue paper. And if the poor souls were washed into the sea, what of their bodies? The sea currents of the area almost always, eventually, deposit the bodies of the drowned back on land. Not a single shred of evidence, not a hint as to the fate of the three men has ever materialised. What drew the three men from the safety of the lighthouse? What caused them to break the golden rule and abandon the light? And what terrible fate befell them at Christmas time at the turn of the century? Only three men ever really knew the answers, and these three men vanished without a trace. light the lamp. I've got to tend everything on my own at the moment until Benny finally turns up again. So I'm going to shine out that light and hopefully you guys can keep an eye out for him too. Maybe on Instagram or Twitter. Um, at Twitter we're at Kraken Cove. On Instagram it's Kraken Cove Pod. Sign up and keep an eye out for Benny. See if there's anything mysterious happening. See you later guys. There are three ways you may contact Kraken Cove. Either by email at podcast at gmail.com On Twitter at Kraken Cove Or Instagram at Kraken Cove Pod Ha ha! 